Bolsonaro, you might have heard of him. He's the current president of Brazil, pending on today's election. He is known for a lot. The far-right president of Brazil has been known for telling a fellow lawmaker that she was, quote, too ugly to rape. He reportedly referred to black activists as, and I quote, animals who should go back to the zoo. In another instance, he said that his son should die in an accident rather than show up with a mustachioed man, adding that he was, quote, incapable of loving a homosexual son, end quote. I really cannot recount the amount of terrible headlines that surround this guy. I also remember in a separate instance, the dictatorship's biggest mistake was to torture, but not to kill. Normally, I don't like getting into politics in a podcast, but this particular human being scares the living hell out of me, and what is frightening to imagine is if somehow he manages to win re-election. There's a million things at stake. There are so many things at stake that I, it's hard for me to wrap my brain about around what it would mean if he wins re-election. By far the, mo the scariest for everyone on the on planet Earth, for all Earthlings, uh, his re-election would mean the continuing devastation of the Amazon. So that was Professor Barbara Weinstein at NYU, who specializes in modern Brazil, explaining why if Bolsonaro somehow manages to win, the planet is essentially doomed. I mean, Bolsonaro's presidency has led the Amazon to be deforestated at an astounding rate, which is terrifying. And the fact that if he wins, it might bring the Amazon to a tipping point where we can never go back. So this is all terrifying to think about. But what can we learn about looking in history? I mean, how did Brazil go from having a popular union workers activist to a far-right president? So you know the drill, people. When you do not hear my voice, you can most definitely count that it is Professor Barbara Weinstein from NYU. So I feel like the first thing we have to understand is that the electoral system in Brazil is actually pretty reliable. I mean, there's a mandatory voting system. You must vote or you have to pay a fine. So the turnout is always high and there's no voter suppression. So that means that Bolsonaro was rightfully elected in the first place. But before we get to that, let's backtrack and let's meet Lula. Lula is really one of the most amazing, um, again, I'm not talking about good or bad, but just amazing and unusual sort of extraordinary political careers of any currently active politician. So Lula came from a very poor migrant family that migrated from the northeast of Brazil to Sao Paulo. He worked as a tornero mecanico, and then he became active in the metallurgical workers' union during the 70s, during the dictatorship. And so Lula started to mount a response to the strict labor restrictions of the dictatorship. And he emerged as the most important labor leader of the metallurgicos, the metallurgical workers, in um, the industrial suburbs of Sao Paulo. And that's really how he started his political career, is as an important uh, labor leader. He went to prison briefly for his role in leading strikes. And, uh, and then in 1980, I think it was either 79 or 80, he was one of the founding members, the founders of the 
um, Workers' Party, the Partido dos Trabalhadores. So the Partido de Trabalhadores, or the Workers' Party, was a very important political party in Brazil. Even from its founding, Lula ran for president in 1989 as his party's candidate, then again in 1994, and then again in 1998. His base was growing, but not yet enough for him to win a presidential election. So from the 90s, you take a look at a couple of pictures, you will see Lula dressed in a t-shirt and jeans, leading some sort of protest, blood, sweat, tears in the background. He looks like a union's activist. But in 2002, when Lula ran for president a fourth time, he tried something a bit different. He switched in his t-shirt and jeans for a suit and a tie. And in 2002, Lula brought several members of the conservative and center-right parties into his campaign, including prominent businessmen as his running mate. By including them, he expanded his coalition to support the center-right voters, like businessmen and bankers. And so Lula became someone who could not only speak at Flavelas, but attend major bank meetings. So Lula formed a new coalition, one that included his far left and one that started to include more moderate voters. And that led Lula to winning his first presidential election. And in Lula's first term, the economy actually was doing pretty well. Uh, first of all, he inherited a relatively stable uh, fiscal system from Fernando Henrique Cardoso that, in effect, inflation had been brought under control. Uh, the government um, uh, deficit had been brought under control. So the economy was in relatively good shape in terms of sort of stability, the ability of Brazil to participate in sort of international trade and so on. The other thing that fell in his lap was a commodity boom, the massive growth of the Chinese economy during this period. China is now Brazil's leading trade partner, created a market for a lot of commodities, particularly export commodities that Brazil was um, uh, producing. So Lula wasn't really responsible for that, but he was responsible for a series of programs that addressed the very, very poor of Brazil. Lula was responsible for La Bolsa Familia, a series of economic programs that provided financial aid to poor Brazilian families. In order to be eligible, the families needed to ensure that their children were attended school and were getting vaccinated. And so this was meant to bridge the gap in poverty a bit. And so when Lula left office, he was actually pretty popular. He had close to a 90% approval rating. That's high. Like, really, really high. And so in 2009, Lula picked Dilma Rousseff as his successor, a fellow Workers' Party member. She inherited his coalition and easily won the presidency in 2010. The problem was that she wasn't exactly the best politician. She was a good administrator, but she had never run for elective office before. I mean, before she ran for presidency. She was not a charismatic figure, but I think she was not capable at dealing with the kind of sort of negotiating and, you know, kind of arm twisting, gentle arm twisting. And so, you know, she didn't know how to maneuver once things started getting difficult. And they started getting difficult really fast for two reasons. One is the sort of overcommitment that Lula made with taking on both the World Cup and the Olympics. But the main thing was the end of the commodity boom. 
So as the commodity boom ended, so did the economic growth that had followed Lula during his presidency. On top of the economic problems, there had been corruption scandals, and a government investigation concluded that many worker party officials were engaged in a corrupt scheme with the Brazilian state-owned oil company. So Dilma's approval ratings tanked and she was removed from office. And Lula was also implicated for allegedly taking bribes. So whether or not you believe the corruption scandals, that is completely up to you. But I do want to acknowledge that corruption is pretty widespread. I'm not trying to sugarcoat this by any means or say that it is okay, but it is a pretty important part of the story. So essentially, there was a corruption scandal within the Workers' Party that tainted Lula and Dilma's image. Dilma's image was essentially trashed, but Lula remained pretty popular, despite having been sent to jail. And when he was sent to jail, this provided a vacuum within the Workers' Party. So as the coalition collapsed, this gave opportunity to an unlikely politician to start building his career from the right. And so now I wanted to ask you about uh, Bolsonaro's uh, career. Like, how did he become president? Can you explain a little bit about <laughs> That's such a good question. <laughs> so really, it's, uh, um, so he, I guess his, his background is he was in the military as a young man. Uh, and uh, but very soon after leaving the military, he began running for office. And so he's been a member, he's been a deputy in the Comité of Deputados, which would be like the House of Representatives in the U.S. He's been for many years now and was always a very marginal figure in Congress. So because he was extremely from the right, he was an incredibly marginal figure in politics. But in 2018, he ran for president and won. And Bolsonaro's core supporters came from the BBB, the Bullets, Bibles, and Beef. Bolsonaro's supporters were evangelicals, farmers, businessmen, anti-abortion voters. He managed to pull voters that had felt left behind by Lula, or people who were tired and just wanted to distance themselves from the Workers' Party, from corruption scandals. So that's how Bolsonaro managed to get elected. And I think several things happened. I think part of it was the ongoing economic crisis that made people feel that they needed somebody new, somebody who was an outsider. Uh, in fact, that Lula could not himself could not run. And then there was this incident again. I, I don't know. It's hard to call this luck, but you had some guy, crazy guy, who tried to stab um, uh, Bolsonaro to death. And Bolsonaro survived. It was a very serious stabbing. He survived. And that helped kind of enlarge his kind of aura of this kind of, now his followers call him mito, legend, you know, myth. So for the last couple of years, Bolsonaro has been in office. In office, Bolsonaro has seen further destruction of the Amazon, one of the worst forms of extreme hunger in Brazilian history. And Brazil had one of the worst death rates during COVID, close to 680,000 deaths. Brazil's GDP has dipped back down, and he's took a confrontational stance in trying to control the media and fighting the Supreme Court. His popularity has never exceeded 40%. On the other side, in 2019, the Supreme Court released Lula from prison and annulled his conviction and allowed him to run against Bolsonaro in, well, the current election, 2022. But I do think it's interesting, because from now there's no going back. 
The polarization of Brazilian politics is evident, and the fact that Bolsonaro managed to win is a frightening reminder that people tend to flock to extremes whenever they feel that they're not getting whatever they deserve. Extremism. And in effect, Brazilian politics today orbits around, and I quote, two poles that are represented by either Bolsonaro on one hand or Lula and the Workers' Party on the other. If Bolsonaro manages to win, it would facilitate further growth of the evangelical fundamentalism and lead to an increased devastation of the Amazon. It would create more violence against the indigenous and left-wing activists and create greater international isolation for Brazil. So my fingers are crossed that that will not happen. But I do think it is interesting to analyze how a country like Brazil, who had such a high approval rating for a union leader, could go to support someone as extreme as Bolsonaro, an anti-vaxxer, anti-pro-choice, anti-dictatorship. Loki, it is wild. But with this ends of podcast episode, I hope you guys enjoyed it. And good luck to us all. Haha, you thought this was over. <laughs> Not quite yet. Uh, thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you guys would like to and have the monetary stability to, and you would like to support my Patreon, I will leave a link in the description below, or you can find me at Patreon Traveling Cuervo, where I will post episode scripts, a podcast series about the Renaissance, open only to patrons. So yeah. But the best thing that you could do, obviously, is listen to this show. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a brilliant day. And now, au revoir, mon ami. Goodbye.